If you would turn there in your Bibles, Hebrews 11, starting at verse 19. If you need a Bible, ushers have Bibles available, just raise your hand. They'll bring one that you can use uh, throughout our service today. Let's stand together. Would you please stand with me as I read and you follow along with me. Hebrews 11, starting at, I'm sorry, Hebrews 10, starting at verse 19. Hebrews 10, starting at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtains, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with the true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you, endu you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. May God give us understanding in this text as the word is presented with this text. Let's take a moment to pray. If you would, as you remain standing with me, let's bow together in a moment of prayer. Thank you, Father, for allowing us to be here today. We thank you for each person here. We pray for those who are absent and who are traveling. We think of Charles as he spent some time uh, in Chicago. We pray for um, Heidi 
and uh, her four boys as they spend time with her parents in Indiana. Uh, we pray for Michelle and uh, her children as they spend time uh, with her parents there in upper Wisconsin. We pray that you would bless with safety um, they, those who will be traveling. I want to thank you for uh, just giving me safe travels this week and allowing me to come back and be here. And I want to thank you, Lord, for, for Brian as he speaks today, that you would, um, you would give him uh, that measure of your Holy Spirit to take what you have shared with him during the week that he has studied through and he's committed himself to, and that you would uh, speak your word through him today so that we might be encouraged and have a blessing from your word, that we might be challenged in your word as well. Lord, I, I think of, of anniversaries that have been celebrated. We think of uh, James and Trenace and their anniversary. Um, I think of my mom and the anniversary coming up for, for her as she looks back on years that she's had with, uh, with her husband, my father. We, um, we thank you for those. Uh, we'd ask that you would uh, allow our hearts now to be focused towards you and to uh, listen attentively to your word, your truth. We thank you now for uh, the action that's been taken by our Supreme Court to, um, to uh, take that wicked um, action of abortion out of the, the federal uh, place of where it was given approval. And uh, we pray, Lord, that we as believers would be thankful and will we'll stand strong against evil that we see in, in this life and speak against it and stand against it. So, Lord, thank you for your truth. Open our hearts to hear your word, to receive it with gladness and to walk in it. We pray in this in Jesus' name. Amen. Choir, would you come for our special music before the preaching of God's word this morning? And I want to say this, the book of Hebrews is one that we really don't know the author. We don't know who wrote this book, but we do know that the Holy Spirit inspired it. We can see that it's been a blessing to all the church, and it's been a blessing in such a way that it explains to us Christ's work. But maybe I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but the book of Hebrews has been such a blessing to me. And I wanted to preach it because I taught Sunday school on it recently, and I just found it to be something that just blessed me. And so when you look at the book of Hebrews and you look at where we are in this message today, chapters 1 through 10 point out how it points out Christ through the Old Testament. And then chapters 11 through 13 explain how we should live. And this passage that we're going through today is the pinnacle of the book. It's where theology marries practice. And the first thing that he does is he says, therefore, brothers. And when you see it, therefore, he is basically saying you had to have learned what came before in the book. Right? Presuming you understand these things, that this book is about three ages. Three ages. This book is about the previous age, it's about the church age, and it's about the age to come. 
The previous age is the age before Jesus Christ came, before we received the Holy Spirit, when there was a weak spiritual presence. Where demons would oppress people and people had no resource. Where the only place that you saw God working was in this little land of Israel that, you know, you would have a hard time finding on the globe. And in the church age, things changed. Where Jesus met with his disciples and said, I'm going to send you out two by two and I'm going to give you victory over the demons. I will establish my church on you guys and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's the church age. But then we have the age to come. We all looking forward to that. Maybe everybody in the room shouldn't be looking forward to it, but I look forward to the age to come. That's when the Lord returns. And so this book is about three ages. This book is about Jesus Christ, who he is and why he came and why he will return. And this book is about faith, that we must believe in Jesus, that we need the confidence to trust in him, not ourselves, that we need the endurance to see the reward through to the end, that we need the courage to face our doubts and fears as we follow him. And when you look at the beginning of the book, it kind of outlines what the book is about. And I love chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. I love it. Because it breaks down the three points that I said. And just think about it, right? I said three ages. I talked about Jesus. I talked about faith. Let's look at verse 1 through 4 and see if you see that as well. Long ago, that's previous ages. And many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days the current age, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Will he, when will he inherit all things? The age to come. But who is he talking about? He's talking about his son. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as superior to the angels as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. He is on top. He is the greatest. And because he is the greatest, we ought to believe in him. That's where faith comes in. And this passage, faith is just implied. But look, at chapter 2, verse 1 through 4, faith is not so implied here. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. What's that? That's faith. Lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. In other words, in the Old Testament, God didn't play. How do you think he's going to play now? How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared to at first by the Lord, and it was tested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. That let us know right there. Verse 5, let us know this book is about the age to come. So it's three things this book is about. It's about three ages. It's about Jesus. It's about faith in him. In fact, the book outlines it in this way, that Jesus is greater than the angels in chapter 2. I'm chapter 1, that chapter 2, that Christ came as a man, 
at chapter 3 and 4, Christ is better than Moses, so listen to him. Chapter 5, that Christ is our high priest. Chapter 6, that if you receive Christ, you must grow. He stopped the whole book. Right? He said, hey, hold up a second. If you receive Christ, you got to grow. Right? If the ground receives dew and it doesn't grow, what would you say? That's cursed ground. If you receive Christ and you don't grow, what are you? He started to pick the, back book, the book back up. In verse 7, he says, Jesus is a priest of a new order, a better order. In verse, chapter 8, Jesus is the priest of a new covenant, a better covenant. Amen. Chapter 9, Jesus is the minister of a better holy place than the temple. And chapter 10, Jesus offers a better sacrifice than lambs and bulls himself. And so we learn what this book is about, and this passage right here, it brings all those three together. That's why I love this passage, Hebrews 10. Getting into verse 19, he said, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter. Now, what is he talking about here? We have confidence to enter the holy place where God is. In the previous ages, they didn't have that confidence. In fact, not even the priest had that confidence. The priest tied a rope around himself when he went into the holy place because he knew if he messed up, somebody had to drag him out because he'd be dead. One of the first instances of them going into the holy place, Aaron had some sons, two sons. They went into the holy place with something they shouldn't have been doing, right? The passage doesn't explain exactly what happened, but the next passage say, don't come in drunk to the holy place. It implies what happened. You can't play with God. You didn't come where God was. Matter of fact, they tried to bring the Ark of the Covenant. David was dancing and praising. Brother Dale was alluding to that. He was dancing and praising. Yeah, we're praising God. And the cart that was holding the Ark of the Covenant shook a little bit. Somebody touched it, tried to steady it. He was trying to do what God said. But what did he do? He came into the holy place. And what God do? Smited him right there. Because you didn't play in the previous age. You couldn't come into the holy place. But when Jesus Christ died, what happened? He tore the veil between God and man. And so now we can enter that holy place. The place that other people used to be afraid of, we enter. Now we have to understand when we go out and witness to people, they still have that fear. I talk to people every day and they have a fear of church. And you know what they're instinctively saying? I don't know if I can stand in the presence of holy God. And they're not wrong. Even Isaiah said, woe is me. I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And I'm a prophet. Moses used to wear a veil. People didn't play and people didn't approach God. But in this age, he, we say, Abba, Father, which means Daddy. We approach God. In this age, we have a great high priest. And so the point of these first few verses is to say this, you need to draw near to God. You need to draw near to God because Jesus has made the way for you. Now, he talks about how we should draw near to God. He says, in verse 22, with true heart and full assurance of faith. 
In other words, believe that God has cleansed you enough to be in his presence. Let me read the verses. He says, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, it's an interesting phrases that he used there, but he's using temple terminology, right? He's saying sprinkled clean. What did they do when they cleaned the temple stuff is they would sprinkle it clean, right? Oftentimes, they would sprinkle blood on people. In fact, when they opened the covenant, they killed some bulls and they sprinkled blood on the people and said, okay, this is the blood of the covenant. And they could be accepted by God, but we've been sprinkled by blood. We've been cleansed. He starts to talk about heart, conscience, and body. And what he really means to say, some people try to get into it a little too deep, but his whole point is this, your whole self Both your immaterial part and your material part is now changed because of what Jesus has done. And that allows you to be braver than Isaiah and say, Lord, here I am. He then commands and he says this, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Hold fast the confession. What's the confession? The confession is what Christ has done for you. The confession is the truth. When somebody say confess, they say tell the whole truth. When you can make the confession without wavering, you are confessing what Jesus has done for you, and you're battling doubt. Why do you do it without wavering? Because he is faithful. He then says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Consider how to stir up one another. Because oftentimes when we think about salvation and faith, we think of it as an individual game. But God is saying part of it is a team game. Consider how to stir up. Because if you take God seriously, you understand that everybody around you needs this salvation. He then puts this contrast. He says, stir up to love and good works. You kind of get this thing of like, we're trying to outdo each other, right? But in a good way. We're outdoing each other. We're competing in a good way. How can I get my brothers and sisters to do more for the Lord? And people often think that's the pastor's job or that's the elder's job. It is my job. It is the pastor's job. It's also your job. How can you encourage your brothers and sisters to do more for the work of God? How can your attitude encourage somebody to praise more, read more, be more faithful, be better? How can we be better? He contrasts these two things, neglecting and encouraging. I got to tell you, people always say, I'm so discouraged. That's why I ain't come to church. I got to tell you, you deserve it. Right? You deserve it. And the reason you deserve it is because when you don't come to church, you are discouraging somebody. Neglecting to come is discouragement. He contrasts neglecting to come with encouragement. And so you can't play. People want to play. And the first step is church attendance. People have to be faithful. We all have to be faithful. Listen, it's something that we all have to battle. 
Every time that I go and I want to go to Planned Parenthood and witness, I never really want to go. The first time I went, I had this sinking feeling like I was just going to the place, and it was true, but I was going to the place of murder. I just didn't want to go. And every time I saw a lady come out of there and she wouldn't listen to us, I just thought, that's just somebody who just killed a baby. I kept on seeing a little Wesley in my head, right? I didn't, and I didn't want to see it like that. I didn't want to think that little Wesley could be out there dead. Somebody just killed little Wesley. That's what I kept thinking. But you know what? God wanted me to see that. Now, that ministry is not for everybody. I'm not telling everybody to go there, but what my point is is this. Everybody will face a challenge to their faithfulness. It doesn't matter what you do. It could be imagined or real. It could be somebody's attitude. It could be whatever, but there's always a challenge to faithfulness. Now, I want to take up another level here. Because oftentimes when we use this passage, we use this passage to talk about church attendance, but this passage actually means more than that. Let's think about the title of the book. The title of the book is Hebrews. In other words, this book is written to Jews. And he's saying that some of y'all segregate yourself from other believers. Mm Mm-hmm. It was some Jews that didn't want to meet with some Gentiles because they were some racist. But, you know, in our churches nowadays, people say Sunday is the most segregated day of the week. We segregate from each other. And why do we segregate from each other? Because we put things above God. Some people are putting color above God. They got to go to a black church. Mm-hmm. I'm talking to y'all. See, it's not, it's not as many white people in here, so I'm not going to sit here and just be like, oh, you know, white people are so racist. Because some of them is, but some of them don't want to come to a church like this. And I, I could talk about that. We could talk about the fact that we try to hold a vo- event here and some people from the suburbs don't want to come here because they don't want to come to the inner city where their brothers and sisters is. I can, I can agree with you with that. But those people are not here. I'm talking to you. I'm talking to me. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about people who need to go to a church. I'm sitting there, I'm like, man, if a song don't got no good bass part in it, hey, part of it. That's wrong. That's neglecting to come together, right? I love a good bass solo. I would put one in every song if it was up to me. But that's not all praise is about, right? I mean, you turn on some Christian contemporary, man, I might go to sleep, but I need to learn how to praise the Lord in that, Right? If I'm sitting there saying, well, you know, I didn't really feel the Holy Spirit in that, that's just you. That's just your style. That don't have nothing to do with the words. That don't have nothing to do with the heart of the person that worship. That's just their style. And their style should not cause you to neglect to come together. This also has to do with denominations. As people who came from a Baptist tradition, we had to do better. We understand the word of God, but we oftentimes look at our charismatic brothers as if they're not saved. And we got to do better. And what I mean by doing better is we have to acknowledge that they're saved, and we have to acknowledge some of the positives that they have in their churches. Because some of those churches are more alive than our churches. Now, why they're more alive? Because I believe a lot of those people believe that miracles can be done. 
And when here we get so rational, we don't believe God can do no miracles no more. We don't believe that the preacher can prophesy. We don't believe that somebody could be healed. We don't believe that. And we stop believing that. And we don't want to believe it because we don't want to be disappointed. So we put our feelings over faith. And that's wrong. And so we got to stop neglecting the coming together of ourselves. Now, does that mean everything they do in there is right? I, I, I'll be the first to say no. But I would say we can learn from our other brothers and sisters who believe in Jesus Christ. We can learn something from them. We you can unite at least on believing in Jesus Christ. We may be able to not be able to unite on women pastors. I, I ain't with that, right? The scripture is not with that. We can't unite on somebody falling out in the middle of service. That's disruptive. We can't unite over somebody speaking tongues and nobody interpreting. I'm not with that. That's against the scriptures. But we can unite over the fact that we believe in Jesus Christ. And we need to look for reasons to unite instead of reasons to divide. Because oftentimes what we find out about people who don't come to church is the same thing about people who don't hang out with other people from churches. They got their pet issues. They care about those more than the work of Christ. And so you will be careful, right? I'll see some guys, and I'm like, hey, man, you know a lot about the Scripture. Why aren't you going to church? And it comes out, they got a pet issue. They got a pet issue, right? Talk to some brothers about it. They care about X, Y, and Z. Why has the church got such an expensive building, one guy said. He came in here and said that on a Wednesday. I'm like, oh, this ain't that expensive of a building. What are you talking about? But he ain't going to no church because he's got his pet issue. Another dude, because we don't use the proper name for God. We say Jehovah or we say God instead of Yahweh. This, that was his issue, why he will not go to a church. Other people, we get there, and, and other people have pet ministries. I go to the abortion clinic. Everybody should be here. No, they shouldn't. What makes you think everybody should be here? Are you here 24-7? In other words, there are times when even you're not here. Stop. Everybody should preach the word. No. Everybody should be a teacher. No. Everybody should sing. No. Right? God called you to do what you should do. That don't mean he called everybody else to do exactly what you're doing. But he did call everybody to be faithful and to come together to encourage one another. I can't always tell you exactly what you should be doing. But I can tell you that you ought to be part of the church you ought to be active, and you ought to be encouraging your brother and sister. And if you're not doing that, you're going against the plan of God. And you are forgetting the fact that the day is drawing near. Now, there's three past aspects of the act of faith in these verses. The first one, he says, is to draw near, which battles fear, right? We draw near to God that battles fear. The other one, he says, is to hold fast, which battles doubt. And then he says to consider how to stir up which battles complacency and indifference. We need to have an act of faith, but what spurs on our act of faith? Our act of faith is spurred on by the work of Jesus. Look at all these things Jesus is doing in verse 19 through 25. He has caused us to enter the holy places by his blood. He has opened a way through his flesh. He is our great high priest. He promised He's faithful. He will return. And so I tell you, brothers and sisters, be encouraged. Be encouraged. Be active in your faith because Jesus is faithful. 
Be active because he's coming. That's what verse 26 through 31 is all about. Jesus is coming. I'm going to read it. It says, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The day draws near. You know, I have to give a warning before I go through this passage. Because everybody looks at this passage and they think, oh man, I did do that sin on purpose yesterday. It is talking about me. It's not. It's talking about apostasy. I want to be careful on that because some, in some eras of the church, people have turned this passage into Christians don't sin. Some eras of the church, even today, you'll go and you'll find somebody and they'll say, if you sin on purpose, these verses apply to you. It's not that. This passage is about those who ignore what they know to be true. And they understand the gospel, and they decide to turn away from the gospel. Okay? And when you get to that point, which is a dire point, and I hope you never get there, brother or sister, but if you do get to that point, you got to understand there's no more of a sacrifice for you, which represents hope, but fear. There's an expectation for judgment that you constantly know is hanging over you. And, you know, the reason why sometimes when we read this passage and out of humility, we might think, is this talking about me? The reason you think that is because, in a way, it, it just a little bit of this passage does apply to you in the sense that when we sin on purpose, we always think that God is just floating over us, ready to get, get us, don't we? And we feel that. But here's the thing. For somebody who knows the truth about God and turns away from him, they feel this times a million. Think about all the people that we have put out of the church for church discipline. What do they feel? They feel an expectation for judgment. And let me add to that, because a lot of times in our day and age, we try to take away people's weight. But I'm adding to it. And I'm going to say that not only should you expect judgment, it's certain. It's certain. He makes this argument. If you ignore Moses' law, you got the death penalty. Now, Moses had a lot of death penalties. But the truth of the matter is, is that they had this law where if you literally worship another guy right where they was at, they would have to kill you for that. Right? They would have to kill you for that. And there was another one where if you curse your father or mother, you would get killed for that too. We ought to do something about that in this day and age. But the point is, is that they had this thing where if you worshiped another guy and disrespected God right in front of the people... They had to take you out. And in our church, how do, we, we don't necessarily do that, but if you come into church and you start acting crazy, we will ask you to leave. The reason we ask you to leave is not because we mad at you, even though we are, right? If you hear, I mean, I'm not going to lie and say I'm not mad when you disrespect God. I do get angry about that. But the reason I do that actually is for your protection. 
Because the longer you go about disrespecting God, the more judgment you incur. I'm trying to stop. I'm, I'm stopping it for you. Right? But if you ignore Moses' law, there was a death penalty. And then the writer of Hebrews makes this argument, isn't Jesus better than Moses? So if you ignore Moses and you get the death penalty, what do you think will happen when you ignore Jesus? Now, he makes this really interesting argument because we don't think of it this way, but he says it, and I want you to notice three things in this passage, okay? Think of these three things, and we, what do we associate three with in the church? We associate with the Trinity. I want you to notice how the whole Trinity is mad at you. He said, trample underfoot the Son of God. Now, we've seen images of the Son of God being angry, so maybe that's not as shocking to you, but it should be a little bit shocking that the one who will get on, on a cross might come off that cross and come after you. But then he says, how outraged the spirit of grace. Now, listen, you know what? Anger in the spirit of grace is like making Heidi mad. Like, you can't, <laughs> listen, it's, I'm telling you, you know you did something wrong if you angered the spirit of grace. He called it the spirit of grace, right? We often call him the spirit of peace. If the spirit of peace is going to war with you, you done really messed up. And then he says, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Who is he? That's the Father. In other words, we see the whole trinity in judgment. It is nothing to play with. Now, he quotes three different passages in, this, in these verses. The first passage that he quotes is actually is, is kind of a, it's kind of mixed into the passage. But is this, in Isaiah 33, God compares his fiery descent on the mountain with hell. And so you remember in Exodus 20 when God came and he gave the Ten Commandments. He descended on the mountain. The mountain was full of fury of fire. And in Isaiah 33, God compares that with hell to say, I bring fire to all my enemies. But then in Deuteronomy 32, 35, that's where he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. It's a song of Moses. In fact, it's the last song that Moses ever sings. God says, hey, I'm going to teach you this song because the people are going to turn away from me. But I want them to know I will redeem them, but I also got to show that I don't play with sin. Vengeance is mine. I'll repay. The people who attack my people are going to pay. My people who profane my name, I will also make them pay. And then Psalm 50, verse 4. It's a psalm of Asaph. Now, Asaph, to me, Man, it's hard for me to debate whether I love the Asaph Psalms better or the David Psalms better. But Asaph is introducing God in this song. And he introduces him as a God who will judge his people. And then later on in that psalm, God himself starts speaking. You'd be like, whoo! God, save some for the next track, right? But God comes on and he is just throwing some fire. But the idea is that God is powerful and don't play with him. He's going to judge. And that all leads to verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's fearful. We ought to be afraid of God. If we want to play with him. 
he described that he got hands, right? That he can act. But the biggest descriptor of God is living. Oftentimes in the book of Acts, you get implied that other gods were mad at Paul. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, it is even implied or stated that other gods are mad at the prophets. Whether you look at Elijah, Baal was mad at him, right? Asherah was mad at him. If you look at even the name Jerubbabel, which is Gideon's name, right? Jerubbabel means let Baal contend with him. Baal mad at him. But he used that as a bad honor because he was saying, Baal can't do nothing to me. But this is not those weak gods. This is the living God. Right? When Jonah described, all the other people was talking about all their gods and everything, and Jonah was describing his God, he said, you know, I served a living God who made the seas. They were like, why you disobey him and get on a boat? We, uh, we worship a God that you don't play with. So don't play with him. But then he goes into verse 32, and he starts to encourage the people. Right? He just threatened the people. Now he didn't encourage them. He says in verse 32, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. What's his point? His point is, don't throw faith away. He says, remember. In other words, this is just a passage just to believers. If you're in this room and you're not a believer, I'm sorry, this doesn't apply to you. But he says, remember when you started this race, when you were enlightened. In other words, when God gave you knowledge that only he could give you. When he opened your eyes for the first time and you started to realize, all this time I've been blind. When he made you alive and you realize, all this time I've been dead. When he did that, there was nothing anybody could do to you to stop you from serving the Lord. And that enlightenment led to endurance. And why did you endure? You endured because for you, the promises of God were as real as if they were going to come tomorrow. You focused on the promises. You focused on your partnership with those who helped you be saved. For them, you were like another son, another daughter. You couldn't stop your connection with them. It led to compassion. It led to giving. It led to seeking a reward from God. It led to doing what's right. And the writer says, don't throw that away. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence. Now, here's the thing. When people read things like confidence, they think about, ooh, I got to be confident in myself. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about confidence in Christ. 
Therefore, do not throw away your confidence because it has a great reward. And the kind of implication that he's given is this. When you throw away your faith, you throw away your reward. He says you need to endure because endurance takes you from do to receive. You need to endure. And the reason you need to endure is because God will return. He combines three passages together in a beautiful way that makes it seem like it's one passage. Isaiah 26. That's the same passage that says he keeps him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. But later on in that chapter, which is about salvation, God talks about striking the wicked in the process of saving us. And Haggai 2, 6, he combines that in there. It says, in a little while, that's where that came from. And in that chapter, God is encouraging his people because what had happened was some people had saw the temple being rebuilt and they realized it was nothing compared to the previous temple. But God encouraged them by saying, in a little while I will return and nobody will scoff at when I return. Right? You could look at this temple and you could think less of it. And I'm not mad at you if you do because you saw the previous temple. But when I return, nobody's going to scoff at that. And then Habakkuk 3 is when he starts to talk about, I'm sorry, Habakkuk 2, he starts to talk about if my vision seem to delay, if the promises that I gave you don't seem to be coming true, you got to realize the righteous live by faith. And so he combines these three passages and he says this, yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. That's heavy. Because he's saying you have to live by faith. Now, oftentimes when we talk about faith, we talk about it in fantastic proportions. I remember I was talking to my Uncle Derek about faith, and he was saying faith is like when you walk in in the dark and you don't know where your next step is, but God still told you to take that step. And I thought that was a good analogy. But here's the thing. Most of us don't have to have that kind of great faith. I got to be real with you. You are not, most of you are not called to that kind of great faith. You're not called to blind faith. You're called to reveal faith. Most of us in this room are not struggling with something invisible that we got to step into. Most of us are struggling with, can I wake up on time to get to Sunday school or not? Will I read my Bible or not? Am I going to listen or not? Am I going to stop cussing or not? Am I going to drink or not? Am I going to smoke this cigarette or not? None of that has anything to do with anything invisible that you ain't seen. In other words, the path is laid out before you. The last path is laid out before me. The things that I'm tempted with are not the things that I didn't see coming. It ain't no mystery to things that I struggle with. God ain't never hit me. Satan ain't never hit me with something. I'm like, whoo, man, I'm walking in blindness here. It's never been that deep. Whenever I'm struggling with my faith, it is simple things, such as telling the truth, humility, mastering my anger, basics of the basics. And I would encourage you to not not make your struggle seem so fantastic when it is actually quite simple. Now, it doesn't mean that that's easy, because you're going to have some struggle in your faith Every day. 
But what I'm telling you is, is that it's often a simple question of, am I going to step forward where God told me to? Or am I going to shrink back in fear? We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old receive their commendation. By faith, we understand the universe was created by the word of God. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice. By faith, Enoch was taken up. And without faith, it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God, which is what this passage is about, must believe he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. You know, this passage should tell us to encourage one another with this, that we ought to draw near to God. We ought to turn to our brother and our sister throughout our week, throughout our days, and continually say, draw near to God. We ought to turn to our brothers and sisters and say, hold fast his promises without wavering, because he's faithful, so you should be faithful. We ought to consider how to stir one another up and spur each other to better Christians. And we have to remember what God has already brought us through to spur us to continue to be faithful like we were faithful in the past. We need to challenge each other with this, that we don't neglect the coming together of ourselves in unity. That is more than just attendance, even though it includes attendance. It also includes all the petty things that we can do to divide ourselves. We ought to challenge ourselves to not throw our faith away. I have seen too many people shipwreck their faith over something petty. We ought not throw away our own walk. We ought not throw away our principles. We ought not throw away our understanding of God's power. I was talking to my wife the other day, and she was encouraged because I told her. She was like, man, I don't know about my cousin. Her cousin is gay. I don't know. And I said, it's just a sin. You don't think God can fix a sin? The sin might be great to us, but it's nothing to God. She said, you believe my brother still got hope? I said, yes, I do. Because he's just a sinner that needs to be saved. No different than me and you. There's nobody out there that cannot be saved. That don't mean they will. But it means that we ought not throw away our faith that God can do a work. Ten years ago, would you have told me that Roe versus Wade would have been overturned? I would not have believed you. But we need to believe that God can do great things. It's necessary for us to think that. You know what? I truly believe my Aunt Mickey wouldn't be here if we didn't believe that God could heal. I don't believe that many of you men that came from the mission would have been here if Brother Dale didn't believe that God called him to do a work. I don't believe that most of us in this church would be here if my dad didn't believe that God could do a great work through him. I think about many of you. You have to believe that God is doing a great work. I think of my Auntie Shell working at the school. You got to believe that God going to do something for them kids, don't you? Because you see when they come in. You just think about what you can do and how God can work on them on the other side. You have to believe that God can do a great work. You've got to look at Jesus in this passage. 
how he opened a path through his death, how he serves as a priest in his life, and how he will return and hold us all accountable. His work makes the passage work. And then lastly, we need to draw near to God and not waver. That's the first section. Draw near to God without wavering. We need to realize that the day is coming, that God will judge. So we need to endure to receive the reward because the main point of this is that God rewards the faithful. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for your Holy Spirit allowing us to understand more and more your truths. We pray that you just bless us, Lord, so that we would be enlightened, that we would understand the truths that only you could reveal that we would have a faith that has the three components that you mentioned in this passage, that we will be confident in you, that we would endure to the end, that we would have courage to face our fears and our doubts, that we would understand what this passage is about, Lord, that it is talking about the three ages, how your work has transformed the way that we can even approach you, in the previous ages, we were afraid to approach you, but this age, we don't fear approaching you because we seek the reward to come in the, pre, in the next age. We think about Jesus Christ who enabled all of this, and we understand that we need the faith to believe in him. So I pray in all these things, your name, amen.